Okay, so this is a little embarrassing to admit, but I have this recurring fantasy where the band Oasis gets back together, and I'm at one of the reunion shows when suddenly Noel Gallagher, the guitarist, asks if anyone in the audience knows how to play the solo to the song Live Forever. And impossibly, Noel somehow sees me and invites me up on stage. And I nail it. And this is how I get discovered. This is how my life changes forever. Berkeley songwriting student Indigo Anson probably understands this kind of dream. I have a project called Chrysalis, and I'm a singer-songwriter. The difference is, they're kind of living it. Okay, so you know how when you're a kid, you like are in a mall and you sing loud because you think that you're going to be discovered? Like, the next Warner person is just walking across the hall, you know? Basically, that is what happened to me. Uh (laughs) I'm Brian Paris, and in this episode of Sounds of Berkeley, I talk with Indigo about their journey from being a theater kid to a songwriter whose intimate indie folk music has brought them to stages around the city, including to a festival slot at this year's Boston Calling. And as we enter Pride Month, Indigo, who identifies as trans and non-binary, shares how songwriting has provided a space for them to express their full identity through their art. And I should clarify that, unlike how it goes in my Oasis dream, it's no fluke that people with major platforms started discovering Indigo. Sure, Indigo was in the right place at the right time, but they'd also done the right things to make the most of that moment. Really, it's all there in the name. Chrysalis a story of continuous growth and transformation, all leading to something new and seemingly impossible. And yet, that's just what nature intended. I can't intoxicate you. A quick note before we get going. At the time of this interview, Indigo went by the name Isa, and they refer to themselves that way a few times, but they've given us their blessing to run our conversation as it was recorded. First things, congrats on the upcoming slot at Boston Calling. So huge. Thank you. How is the prep and the rehearsals going for that? Um, it's going well. It's been very like, it's always just so weird to see my music come together because, you know, it always starts with just me in my apartment, usually at a time in which I should be sleeping and I'm just like, do, 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 you know? And so it's always very stripped. And so to hear um, what my bandmates are thinking for like arrangement ideas, since they're super like involved with helping me arrange it and all of that, it's very cool. I wanted to talk about a lot of that stuff too coming up. So we'll definitely get there because I want to hear about the sort of difference between when it's just you and a guitar and making that music and then sort of this this push more towards the fuller band sound, which is exciting. How how did the festival slot come about? It's crazy. Okay, so you know how when you're a kid, you like are in a mall and you sing loud because you think that you're going to be discovered? Like the next Warner person is just walking across the hall, you know? So basically, that is what happened to me. Uh, (laughs) 
So I'm a street performer at Faneuil Hall and I had just started. It was my first day actually. And it was about a year ago now. It was last May. I remember it was a Thursday from like 11 to one. I was posted up in front of Wagamama and I was so nervous. I was so stressed. And also there was like literally no one there because again, it was during lunch on a Thursday. <laughs> so, um, and so I was playing one of my songs and doing my little thing. And then this guy comes up to me, tapping me on the shoulder. And he was like, hey, is it cool if you like turn off your amp for a second? I was like, yeah. And I had heard from one of the other performers that it's really common for like the vendors to be like, hey, can you turn down? Like, you're so loud. I can't hear my customers, which ended up happening like all summer, you know? <laughs> so I just thought that that was what was happening. So I was like, yeah, of course, you know, just a normal looking guy. So I was like, okay, yeah, what's up? <laughs> and um, he goes, yeah, so um, I'm one of the bookers for Boston Calling and I really like your sound. It was before I even had the tip bucket. I was I had just opened my guitar case. He was like, I wrote down my email and threw it in your guitar case. Email me. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, sick, art, awesome, yeah. I hope you sang it back that way. That's exactly him. what I did. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. exactly what. I did. Well, I was very like I was stuttering. I was uh, okay. <laughs> what? Oh. Hi, thanks, I guess. And then after that, I had to be like, sorry for the brief interruption. It was in the middle of my set. So it was just, sorry for the brief interruption. I have to, uh, here's the rest of the my music. Here's the rest of my song. It was so weird and no one was there. Oh my God, it was crazy. That is totally wild. And I feel like it very much fits with your songwriting journey, at least as I've understood it. And I want to get to that, kind of like how you got to be a songwriter, because I want to hear that story from you too. But I want to rewind even further. Before music was a career choice, you know, like what was your relationship to it? Were you always playing and just not thinking about it as a vocation or job or something? Or was it just like sort of the side character that you then at some point realized was a main character? Hmm. Well, when I was a kid, I always was super into music. I was always, I was like Sharpay from High School Musical. At family events, I would be like, guys, stop what you're doing. I have a dance routine. Nothing was choreographed. I'd put on like replay by Ayaz or like Dynamite and like do, do cartwheels. I just like needed to be like, you know, like the center, you know? So I was always kind of kooky and I always loved to sing. I did a lot of theater and then I, I ended up kind of doubling down on theater in middle school. And then I was like, I want to do it in high school. I went to an arts high school and majored in theater there. It was a program that is supposed to prepare you for a BFA in musical theater or acting, whatever you choose to go into. But I was very much like a musical theater guy. So yeah, it was just, there was a lot of pressure to do that. Um, and I would overwork myself. And the program that I was also a part of was very traditional in the sense that the girls were all kind of told to be very feminine or, or normally the one thing that was important was like a typecast. And since like I'm a soprano and 
I'm like skinny and young. <laughs> I was like typecast as like an ingenue type. And so with that came the expectation to present in a way that is hyper feminine. It felt so restrictive. It felt like the absolute, like the the opposite of expressing yourself and being creative. And I didn't really have the time to think outside of that and be like, is this actually something that I want long-term? I did always know that I didn't feel 100% satisfied just pursuing musical theater. So I was looking into like all the BA musical theater programs and I actually ended up <laughs> going somewhere. I ended up going to college for musical theater and political science. <laughs> for one semester as a double major. It was so sad. Uh, I transferred out of that school after one semester and then came to Berkeley. Um, Cause I knew that I wanted to be involved with, I didn't know the, the language for it then, but now I know that it's mutual aid and working with community and like that is something that's really important to me. So I knew that I wanted that, but I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> and I didn't know why I felt like just doing theater wasn't gonna feel fulfilling. I also think that it took more experience for me to get to where I am in the sense that, I don't know, there was stuff that, that happened in the plot that that led me to, to where I am now. You know what I mean? Like without chapters four through seven, we can't get to chapter nine, you know? I had just turned 18 and the expectation to like know what you wanna do when you're just so young, it's just like crazy to me. But yeah, so then I step back, it's COVID, I'm home. I also have a lot happening with me and also in the world because it's 2020 and I'm graduating high school on Zoom, um, actually YouTube live stream. <laughs> I have no sense of closure for this part of my life. That was a super formative part. I'm going into this new part of my life and I don't know what to do with that. I'm like, where do I go with that, with those feelings, you know? I can't just exist with them. <laughs> I'm gonna explode. So I started writing then around that time because a month before I had had like this dream where my friend was like singing to me in the dream and then I remembered the melody from the song in the dream and then I like wrote my first song that way. So wait, so you in this whole story, where are you even knowing how to play music? Because it sounds like you're just kind of like, well, you know, I guess I'll just write a song because I dreamed about it, uh, which is more or less what happened. But like, did you have the skill then or you were like, now I need to learn how to do something so that I can flesh this out? Well, OK, so when I was in eighth grade, I took guitar lessons with this guy, Dan, who had gone to Berkeley. Also, he was like a grad and he was teaching um, one of my good friends guitar and he was really loving his lessons. And so he was like, you should take lessons. And I already had known how to play the ukulele because of summer camp when I was like 10. So I was like, okay. And actually, yeah, Dan had like a pretty big influence on, I feel like Dan was like turning me in the direction that I am now. And then theater kind of swiped me like, and I was like, wait, wait, hold on. But basically Dan was awesome because he, super encouraged me to like have my own sound. I remember like covering songs that I grew up listening to. Like there was one that I covered that was um, Imagine by John Lennon. And I would 
change up the melody and he would like help me do that to make it my own. And he was always like, Isa, you need to write music. Isa, you need to write music. And I was like, oh, that's so scary. So, I mean, you know, fast forward, you've got your first ever performances at the Brighton Music Hall. I'm curious how that first show went. Like, w- that did that come about shortly after you had started at Berkeley and was like an opportunity that way? Yeah, so it was through the Career Center. Basically, that summer I had auditioned for American Idol through Berkeley's auditions and I did not get it, but I did make it a couple rounds and in one of the last rounds, Liza, uh, who used to work at the Career Center, was in the room. And so she heard me that way. And then she emailed me. She was like, hey, I like you. Let's meet. <laughs> and I was like, okay, sick. So then we met in the fall. And at this point, like, I don't have any music out. But I had written so much in the spring semester, like my first semester at Berkeley. So I definitely was feeling like I had a good, like a solid foundation for, I don't know, as an artist, I did feel pretty grounded at that point. And she was like, what do you want? Like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to, I don't know. I want to play gigs. I want to release music. I want to do the thing. And she was like, cool. Uh, Once in a while, there will be touring acts who want to have a Berkeley opener. Would you be interested in me pitching you for those? And I was like, yeah. And so she was like, okay, I'll stay in touch. And then like two months later, she was like, Isa, hey, I have a gig for you. Want to do this? I said, okay. And then that's how that happened. Wow. Yeah. Liza, Liza honestly slayed. I thank you, Liza. (laughs) So I'd love to talk about your songwriting specifically too. And, you know, sort of like listening through your debut EP, Margarita Sugar, uh, versus your kind of more recent singles, Margarita Sugar seems to have this very like nylon string, classical acoustic, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, solo Adrian, uh, Lenker vibes. And then your most recent singles have kind of fleshed that out uh, in a more fuller sound. You've got a band helping you, which you mentioned earlier. How does instrumentation and production affect your writing process? For my... EP, I knew that I wanted it really stripped because the project had been like really all the songs were written during COVID. The first one being 200 Miles. That was the song I auditioned for Berkeley with. The tall buildings fade in the fog as this train picks up speed. Hours pass by since I've seen the blue in your eyes. Now you're far behind. That was the one song that I had written that felt really good. And then I was like, okay, I am Berkeley student now. (laughs) I'm a songwriter. So, yeah, all these songs were written during COVID. I think it was important for me to have it be stripped because it was like the way that this was written was me and the guitar. I wrote it for not the world, but for for one person. And then with the other stuff, that was also very intentional, why I wanted to make it full band. So at this point, my bestie AJ, they were like getting into uh, production and super, super, super talented. They do everything. They do like hyper pop to dream pop to folk to country, like one of the most talented people I know. And they also play sax. (laughs) They go to Berkeley too. Um, Yeah, they were like, super super there for me 
So it felt like a no-brainer to have them work with me because I was like, I don't know. I feel like one thing that's super important to not only my artistry, but my life is community. It's, it's the homies. And so, especially around a situation where those people who are helping you make that art were the people who were helping you emotionally through that time. Yeah, those friends who were super there for me in this time in which I was just so sad. Even if it just meant like bringing me food because I wasn't like getting out of bed, you know, but them showing up and doing things like that was like so important. And to be able to have those same people be the people who are gonna make the art that came from a bad situation come to life, I like cannot tell you how powerful that feels. To me, it feels like you've gotten more confidence in what you're doing from this vulnerable place. And now you can invite in this community in part because of what you just said, like now you can, you know, you can trust these people and you can go there and you know that they're going to be committed to that expression, which I think is so cool, which is, you know, something else I wanted to talk about is kind of that raw vulnerability and how you're, how you've been able to kind of make space for that. Like in um, like one of your new singles, Denver, I mean, a lot of your music, for me, longing seems to be a really big part of it. And, you know, longing can be in a range of emotions. It's not just one thing. But there's almost like a physical aching, you know, I think when I've been listening to your music. And like a really powerful metaphor in Denver for me anyway was like the way people's breath kind of relates to different altitudes and how that can cause chest pain. What is that songwriting process like? When did you feel like you could go to this raw place and not just be knocked over by the rawness of it, but in fact have agency artistically and can shape it into something? If I choose to not release something, that's because it's it's too much. But if I'm choosing to release something, then w- once it's it's out, it's like it's not just for for me to experience. It's it's for everybody else, you know. Denver's silly, actually, because it sounds like a sad song, but the way that I wrote it, or, or what I was thinking about when I was writing it, uh, was not sad. Basically, what the song meant to me, and for the person who I wrote it for, it was like, the person who I was dating is from Colorado, and also went to Berkeley, and, you know, Berkeley's just so, or just Boston in general, is just so different than Colorado. And they would always tell me that, like, it felt like the sky was closing in on them because of how uh, the buildings were taller and how there was so much sky in Colorado. But I remember them feeling really homesick and feeling really estranged from Boston. And so I wrote Denver to be like, I can't change the fact that you feel this sadness and the fact that you feel this absence of a sense of home. But... I want to be a home away from home. Like, it's not going to be the same. It's going to be a different way of, of being a sense of home. But I, I want I want to be like some, I want to make you feel comfortable so you can feel safe. So when I say like Denver, 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 lost her, lost her, or miss her, I was like personifying like Denver as like her. <laughs> ah, <laughs> that's, okay. that's what I meant by that. Yeah, it wasn't about losing the person. It was about losing the place. Denver, 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 
you mentioned sort of not being able to connect to your art back when you were studying theater. I read in an interview that you talked about a lot of that had to do with sort of your identity being queer and not being able to feel that connection in theater, but you can feel it um, through your music. And I wondered, like, what changed? What was it that was able to open up that space for you to kind of bring the fullness of who you are into your artistic expression? Well, to be completely candid, um, I did not really feel like there was space for me as a trans person in theater, specifically in musical theater. And I hadn't really gotten to the point where I had really even acknowledged my transness, but I knew that at this point, I really wanted to experiment with masculinity and femininity and what that means to be someone who's fluid. And yeah, like in 2020, during early COVID, there was like this rise in this like community of uh, queer people on TikTok. And that's where I first, like, I made a ton of friends on the internet. That's where I I met my first, like, non-binary person. Basically, yeah, it took till I was, like, 2020, end of high school, to really have, like like, a big queer community where I felt, like, super safe and accepted and loved. And I guess I did in high school, but, but only for, like, being gay, which, like, I was out in high school, but... If I were trans in the theater department, that would be like a big deal. I wouldn't have gotten cast. So is is that in the sense of like your music being able to kind of occupy this space and kind of integrate your sort of full self? Is that because of your own journey that by the time you were pursuing music, you had a, a deeper sense of freedom uh, within yourself? Or was did the music itself feel like it allowed you to kind of grow into that fullness more? I think both. Um, When I came to Berkeley, it was the first time where I was super, super surrounded by queer people. Like my whole friend group was queer people. And like for the first time, I was like having close friends who were trans. And another thing that also happened when I started writing all this music, which I think is important to note, when I started writing all the music when I got to Berkeley, spring of 2021, I got like my whole, like the half sleeve that I have on my left side my left arm. I dyed my hair purple. I shaved my head. I bleached my hair. And I did all of these things because I finally felt like I had autonomy over myself and my body. And if I wanted to, I was going to because no one was going to tell me otherwise. And it was finally safe for me to do that and for me to feel like when I was expressing myself physically, that was not going to um, hurt me in an artistic sense. There is so much to be done for trans people to be accepted in the communities that they're a part of. We have so, like we have so far to go. But yeah, it was the first time where I was just like, YOLO, if I wanna cut my hair, if I wanna shave my head, I'll do it. Why not, right? (laughs) Sure. And so I was finally able to physically express myself. I was surrounded by other queer people. And I was also in my first like queer, or not even queer, it just my first uh, relationship in general. So I was like writing a lot about that. And so I had that to write about. Just, you know, I felt so free for the first time that the music just like poured out of me. I'm not- 
It's so important to me to center um, identity in everything that I do because it's so part of who I am is my queerness, is my being Brazilian American, my transness. All of that is so, so, so important to me. And so to be a role model to young queer people and be like, listen, we need to keep our community safe. We need to stand up for what we believe in and we need to be vocal about it because if we don't, then no one else will. I wish that I had those role models when I was 14. And so I hope as I grow that I can grow into that. Like someone who is going to consistently use their platform to stand up for what they believe in, to lead with kindness and a love for community because at the root, like if you don't have that and you don't have integrity in your artistry, you have nothing. I know it's not my place to give so much what you take. And I know your love has faced, but I'd still give myself away to see your face. This episode was produced by me, Brian Paris, and co-produced, mixed, and edited by John Mirasola. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. The songs by Chrysalis featured in this episode include 200 Miles, Denver, Unknown, and their newest single, Shapeshift, all of which can be streamed on all major platforms and can be purchased directly on their Bandcamp page, chrysalism4a.bandcamp.com. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for the show, let us know over email at soundspodcast at berkeley.edu. We'd love to hear from you.